The title of our sermon today is, I Came, I Saw, I Conquered. I came, I saw, I conquered. And you know where that comes from, and really it's because today we're in a time of war, and so it seemed fitting that we would take for today's sermon title the phrase spoken in 47 BC by the Roman Emperor Julius Caesar. It was a local victory that he had in Asia Minor, and he used this phrase to commemorate that particular battle. In that year, he made quick end of his enemy. And it was such a quick end that ancient historians at that time spoke this way. They described the defeat as being, quote, like a thunderbolt, which in one and the same moment has come, has struck, and has departed. The historians go on to write that Caesar's boast, quote, was no vain one when he said that the enemy was defeated before he was seen, end quote. And the best summary of the defeat comes from Julius Caesar himself. And it's just three words, and that's our title. It's, I came, I saw, I conquered. Veni, vidi, vici. Well, that's the statement that Julius Caesar used to commemorate his war victory. And as we turn to our passage today, we're going to see a war victory that was like a lightning bolt that came and conquered so quickly. And if we could take from that phrase and apply it to someone of greater import in the battle that we're about to see in in our chapter, then it would be, I came, I saw, I conquered, spoken by Yahweh himself. Our passage today is number, um, sorry, it's Nahum chapter 2, Nahum 2 verses 1 through 7. In Nahum 2, we get an overview, specifically in these seven verses of God's military campaign against Israel's big threat at the time, Assyria, in their capital city of Nineveh. Assyria was a world power, and Nineveh epitomized the grave threat that the Assyrians posed to Israel and to many other nations that had gone back centuries. The Assyrians, just to refresh our memory a little bit on who they were, they were particularly vicious people. They had a bloodthirst of a certain magnitude that we can't even speak of in mixed company. It's true. They devised horrors against their enemies, but their biggest enemy was Yahweh. They just didn't know it yet. Soon they would suffer horrors of their own at his hand. Nahum 2, verses 1 through 7, describes the judgment that's about to befall Nineveh describes the army's haste to defend its city, describes some of the tragic results of the defeat itself. And so, quote, like a thunderbolt which in one and the same moment has come, has struck and departed, we see in one snapshot how almighty Yahweh, who commands all the armies of heaven and the earth, how he came, saw, and conquered the Assyrians in Nineveh. Well, let's read our passage together, Nahum 2, verses 1 through 7. And before I do, let me pray. Father, I ask that you would guide this time, that it would be an important time for us to reflect as we live in a world ravaged by war. Would you help us to see you as the righteous judge, the defender of Israel and of believers of all time? Give us courage as we trust and wait for you with great hope and contentment in the God who delivers. In your name we pray, amen. Let's read Nahum 2, 1 through 7. The one who scatters has come up against you. Guard the fortification, watch the road, 
Strengthen your loins, instill your power with exceeding courage. For Yahweh will restore the majesty of Jacob like the majesty of Israel. Even though those who empty them have emptied them to destruction and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are colored red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is set up to march, and the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his mighty ones. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall, and the mantelet is set up. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is melted away. So it stands fixed. She is exiled. She is carried away, and her maidservants are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their hearts. That's our passage. Verses 1 through 7 reflect this coming judgment of God against Nineveh. It reflects the futile defense of the Ninevites, and it reflects some of the consequences of God's judgment on them. The passage describes a takedown that is over before it begins. Simply put, God himself came, saw, and conquered. Well, no matter how fierce Israel's enemy might be in the height of its power and its own majesty in that day, God is more powerful. God is always victorious. And God wanted Israel to be comforted by knowing that he is going to soon do what he's going to do in judgment to Nineveh. So Nahum, for us, just like for the original readers, he offers three key ideas for those who are oppressed by evildoers of any kind. Three key ideas. And this is an encouragement to them, that the Lord's patience will one day, one day wear out. And at that point, then he will wipe out all evildoers. So the first key idea that Nahum gives is in verses 1 and 2. It's that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, and you can stick an exclamation point on that. Judgment is coming, verses 1 to 2. The second key idea that he encourages his readers with is also worthy of an exclamation point. It's, look at Nineveh's futile defense, verses 3 to 5. Look at Nineveh's futile defense. And thirdly, in the final two verses of our section, verses 6 and 7, we get a third key idea from Nahum, and it's, judgment is here. Should we put an exclamation? Read. The one who scatters has come up against you. Guard the fortifications. Watch the road. Strengthen your loins. Instill your power with exceeding courage. For Yahweh will restore the majesty of Jacob like the majesty of Israel. Even though those who empty them have emptied them to destruction and ruined their vine branches. Well, verse 1 is a divine taunt. And we need to read it that way. It's a sarcastic proclamation that sounds like God is giving these wicked Ninevites a fighting chance to escape his judgment. Doesn't it sound like that? Judgment is coming, but the question is, can the Assyrians stop it? Can they stop it? They averted God's wrath back in Jonah's day, if we go back some generations. And how do they do that? By repenting. But is there any stopping his judgment now in this new generation? That's the question. Verse 1 starts by telling us who on the human plane will bring God's wrath against Nineveh. Nahum writes, the one who scatters has come up against you. He's prophesying about an attack by the Babylonians who are going to overtake Nineveh in a few years forward, a few decades, perhaps 50 to 70 years ahead in 612 BC. 
The Babylonians are those who scatter, Tower of Babel style, Exodus from Egypt style. They scatter peoples. The Assyrian superpower is going to be disbanded by these very Babylonians who, when they arrive, they will cause scattering. Babylonian siege is a face-to-face act of aggression. And Nahum writes that Babylon will come up against you. It's a real meeting of superpowers. It's going to be a terrible war, to say the least. So Nahum gives the Ninevites four commands right there in verse 1, line by line, if they're going to try and stop this onslaught. But keep in mind the sarcasm here. First, Nineveh is to guard the fortification. That's the line. Man the ramparts. Position your soldiers along the top of your walls. Secure your city. Make sure that you're well defended. Because at some moment, the enemy is going to arrive at your walls. Now, a second line there is watch the road. Nineveh is to watch the road. From high up the city walls, the Ninevites are commanded to keep watch far off into the horizon. Spot your enemy as the enemy is approaching. Trace the road from your lookout perch. Watch closely. What do you see? If you can spot your enemy from a distance, then you have time to warn your people, right? Kind of like an air raid siren would do. Even a few minutes could make a big difference in this metropolis. So don't be caught by surprise or the attack might be worse than you could ever imagine. Now, the third and fourth commands here in verse 1, Nahum speaks not only to the soldiers on the wall, but now to the people inside the city. He writes, strengthen your loins, instill your power with exceeding courage. Notice how he couples the word strengthen with courage, and both Moses and Joshua also got that coupling in their own times of preparing for battle. Moses and Joshua were commanded to be strong and courageous. Deuteronomy 31, followed by Joshua 1, Moses passing the mantle to Joshua. In times of battle, Yahweh wanted his leaders fierce, able to withstand whatever was going to come at them from their enemy. And in the face of such a great enemy, the leaders and the people within the walls need to muster all the strength and the courage that they can, or they're not going to survive this attack. Well, for his third command, It's specifically the phrase that Nahum says to the Ninevites, strengthen your loins. Well, the loins are the area of the lower back, the abdomen, uh, abdomen, the hips. It's battle terminology to effectively reference what we would say in modern terminology, your, your core. Engage your core. Hold a tight core. That's what we would say. Because that way, your center of mass can help you as you skillfully wield your weapons of defense in battle. Like your shield, your sword, your javelin, uh, shooting your arrows. You're going to run faster if you engage your core away from your enemy in this case, right? Now, in the fourth command, he tells the Ninevites to, quote, instill your power with exceeding courage. So there's that coupling of the strengthening and uh, being courageous. And that means simply just what it says, to fight with every last drop of strength that you have. The the Ninevites might have strengthened their loins, they might have engaged their core, but they're about to be attacked by the largest army in the world at that point in history. And the only possible way that they'll be able to stand is if they defend themselves to the very last man. It's going to take extreme bravery to accomplish what they need to accomplish. Every ounce of resilience possible drawn from the well of their national spirit. This is the Assyrians' battle of the Alamo. This is it. We'll see what happens. 
There's no backing down once the enemy is spotted off the wall, right? So stand strong. Well, just looking at verse 1, you see Nahum's four commands to prepare for war. And, and so the question does come up, why does he linger so long in giving such positive help? Now, we have said that it's sarcastic, and we really understand that from verse 2. Verse 2 helps us understand what Nahum's really after here. His four commands aren't meant to help Nineveh win a war, although they could. They're ironic. They're actually tragic declarations. Because even if the Ninevites were to make a superior defense against this coming army of the Babylonians, they wouldn't be able to survive the terrors that await them. They wouldn't. Nineveh doesn't stand a chance in war. Because their destruction in spiritual terms here, as we see in verse 2, serves a greater purpose in the mind of God. And what is that? To restore all that the Assyrians have taken from who? From God's people Israel. Judgment must come now in order to begin to restore Israel. Take a look in verse 2. For Yahweh will restore the majesty of Jacob. Well, that word for is really important tells us the reason for all of these commands for Nineveh to mount to defense. And the reason is that, to show how powerful Yahweh is to bring judgment no matter how well his enemies might prepare for a fight. What difference can any defense make when God has set his hand against you? Verse 2 says that Yahweh's plan is to restore the majesty of Jacob like the majesty of Israel. So God's purpose in destroying Nineveh now and not before in an earlier generation when everyone was clamoring for it is to completely reverse the ongoing misfortunes of Israel. Israel's restoration will be so complete that she'll be regarded once again for her majesty, something long lost. We see glimpses of that majesty in Israel's history. You could think of King David and his son, King Solomon, that all the nations wanted to come and revel in the glory of Yahweh as demonstrated in the beauty and the majesty and the dignity and the splendor of the kingdom of Israel. But Nahum goes further back in Israel's history, and he connects the future majesty that awaits Israel with that former majesty that was true of the patriarch Jacob. You see Jacob followed then by Israel in the verse. And really, when we think of the book of Genesis and we think of Jacob's story, we think of him as a schemer, don't we? We think of him as somebody who struggled through his life trying to gain victory over others through his human prowess, control. But cleverness was not Jacob's key to success, was it? God's decision to bless him was his key to success. You'll remember in Genesis 32 that Jacob contended with God, and in the end, what? He was blessed by God. Jacob's cleverness, his trickery, was overcome by God's hand of blessing. And that blessing then spilled over onto his children and their generations so that all who would come from him, who at that point was called Israel, now is theirs who identifies the world out of the overflow of the majesty that God is restoring to her. Doesn't that sound like the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, 1 to 3, that through this seed of Abraham would come a great family, a great nation that would bless all the nations of the earth, all the families. Genesis 12. And so Israel is promised this, and it is repeated in that spirit in Nahum. 
to remind us of what God is going to do when he restores Israel. He's going to create a majesty that only God can accomplish, something that recalls the past but is entirely eschatological, something the world has never seen, a a kind of blessing that the world has never experienced through this tiny country. And that degree of blessing on Israel might still be a far ways off from our, even our own day. But Nahum sees what his people needed to see. And what does he see? That while they're under the oppression of the Assyrians, God will destroy their enemies and restore the majesty of his people. It's a promise. It can't be undone. So go ahead, Nineveh. Muster your troops. Scale your walls. Prepare your people. Attempt an ambush. It just doesn't matter. Your end is sure, and your end is coming. Now look at the end of verse 2. Nineveh is described as those who empty them, meaning those who emptied the northern kingdom of Israel in exile. The verse says that the Assyrians have emptied them to destruction. The people were removed. Their natural resources were stripped. Everything of value was hauled off to sustain this wicked Assyrian society. But was Israel totally destroyed? No. Emptied toward destruction? Yes. But not destroyed. The verse goes on to say that Nineveh ruined Israel's vine branches. Well, vine branches are a great illustration of the fruitfulness of Israel. And Assyria absolutely demolished them. Israel was laid waste. But Nahum says that restoration is just around the corner and Israel will be fruitful again. That's the promise. Now, I've got to show you something really cool from verse 2 that you're not going to pick up in English, but it's the power of words in the Hebrew language to paint an important image of how ironic it is that Nineveh, this great destroyer, will soon be destroyed. The superpower that attempted to empty Israel will soon be emptied itself. And you can't see it in English, but here's the phrase that you do see in English, and then we'll talk through the Hebrew. Follow me in this. The phrase is, those who empty them have emptied them. You see it right there in the text. And it's the repetition that is key here, the repetition of the term empty. You see, the term for empty in, uh, in Hebrew is bakak. Bakak. You can say it with me, bakak. All right, great. And that's actually the sound that a bottle makes if you were to turn it over. And as the water rushes in to dump out water, what noise does it make? Bakak, 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 You want to say that with me too? Turn the jug over. Bakak, 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 bakak. All right. Well, you can hear in these words this, this glurping and this slurping sound. The water coming out as air goes in and bubbles up. And Nahum uses this verb in two forms back to back that make it sound like water is pouring out. And he calls that the emptying. Bikakum, bikim. Bikakum, bikim. Bikakum, bikim. Bikakum, bikim. Well, that's the sound of emptying the land and the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. That's what the Assyrians have done. But that's the sound of what's coming for them because they will be poured out, emptied of all of their majesty. Well, that's the gurgling and the gushing sound that we want to keep in our minds as we go through the passage because you're going to see connections to this. And we want that echoing memory as you read verse 6, 
for example. The gates of the rivers are open. Now we see water rushing. Verse 7, she is carried away. Think about carried away in water. Verse 8, in the past, Nineveh was like a pool of water in the sense of being an oasis, but a pool of water she will become again in her destruction. So keep the emptying, gurgling sound in your minds as we go on. Well, in verse 2, emptying then gives that hint of what's about to happen. Now, as you look over verses 1 and 2 as its own little subsection, we can agree with what one commentator has concluded that, quote, God is determined to judge the city because he is determined to redeem his people. It's that easy. At this point, in God's design, it's one for one. What has served to empty a people will now be emptied in order to fill back up another people. So there's purpose in Nineveh's destruction, and that purpose is the restoration of Jacob's glory. Well, a second key idea, and this brings us to verses 3 to 5. The second key idea is, comes from Nahum, and we'll put the exclamation point on this one too. Look at Nineveh's futile defense. Look at Nineveh's futile defense. Now, as we look at verses 3 to 5, keep in mind that the context of the passage that we've been studying in the context of the whole book is Assyria, right? So we look at how Assyria will fall to the Babylonians. And there's scholarly debate then. If on these verses we're talking about Assyria, we're talking about the Babylonians, depending on how you might be inclined to read it. But we want to keep in context the, the, pas- the, the context of the passage as we read through. So you might be tempted to read this as if we're talking about the Babylonians that attack, but take it instead to be the Assyrians that are trying to defend. Let's reread the verses, starting with verse 3. The shield of his mighty men are colored red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is set up to march, and the cypress spears are brandished. Just verse 3 for now. Picture the Ninevites as they prepare for war. Picture them high up on their walls. They've perhaps spotted the Babylonians far off in the distance, beyond the river, and they are now calculating their defense. They're assembling themselves for a preemptive attack, so they think. They are going to go out and attack their foes before any damage can be done to them at the walls. There are five descriptions right here in verse 3, that help us understand the Assyrians that are preparing for war. First is the shields of his mighty men are colored red. Well, Nineveh is ready to receive flaming arrows or anything that their attackers might throw at them. They have shields that shine red, either because they're shiny copper and they they gleam in the sunlight red, or perhaps it's a thick... uh, leather dyed red that is, has some kind of extinguishing capability for any fiery darts that can thrown on them. But the shields belong to what's described as the mighty men. Mighty men, these strong warriors that face their enemy head on with skill and speed and flash their shields. Now in the second description, notice that Nineveh's top soldiers are called valiant men who are dressed in scarlet, scarlet or crimson. These are among the nobles, that elite class that, that uh, lives in royal clothing for all to see, that royal scarlet or crimson. Now, you'll recall in Jonah 3, 5 to 6, when we preached through that, the king of Nineveh 
and his nobles, both of these designations, were among the first to actually repent of their atrocities. They gave their hearts to God, and they decreed national repentance for all their people, and the people turned to God. But time's passed. Time has passed. Those were days of heartfelt repentance that are no longer. This noble class with its valiant men today are going to be the first that God is going to attack because they haven't had that change of heart. So decree war if you want, rather than repentance. O nobles of Nineveh, you who once exchanged your scarlet robes for sackcloth and ashes, now you have put on back your scarlet. You who once traded wicked pride for humility of heart, your own scarlet robes betray you. Try as you might to stand valiantly against Yahweh's attackers, but it's too late. It's just too late. Notice the third phrase in verse 3. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. Well, the Ninevites don't just stand courageously against the coming onslaught. They ride in chariots that are coated with steel. So who can damage these Ninevites, these, these, these valiant warriors that ride in war machines that flash their metal in the sun? Their chariots are as impenetrable as an, an impenetrable modern tank today. Well, the fourth phrase describes these warriors as set up to march. Perhaps this reflects that they're ready to open the gates to intercept the enemy, perhaps have their own ambush and, and get on with it outside of the gates. If there's time, they can make it into strategic positions and they can take down their enemy. And as Nineveh considers its warriors, as it considers its weaponry, all that is at their disposal, they, they think that they're ready to both defend and attack. But finally, in our verse, Nahum describes the, the, Cyrus, the cypress spears are brandished. And again, this adds to this idea that that very wood that was used to construct Solomon's temple now is for them this material of a spear that's waved menacingly at the enemy, ready to be thrown, ready to quiver in the air just until it strikes right in the heart of the Babylonians. These are skilled warriors. They're experienced They know what they're doing. And the Israelites have often been on the receiving end of those weapons. How many mighty men from foreign lands have fallen because of these warring, uh, valiant noblemen? But even so, here's Nahum's point. Even with all the military capacity, Nahum can't count, uh, or Nineveh can't count on their past battle successes for today. Is there any benefit for everything that they have known and devised and strategized and trained for, for the kind of fight that's coming? Absolutely not. Their experience has made them proud, and in their haughty pride, they've calculated their strength, they've considered themselves prepared to ride out to battle, but verse 4 says something's changing, and it's changing really fast. Listen to verse 4. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. Well, from Nahum's prophetic perspective, those steel-ensconced chariots that were lined up and set to march out are now jerking around in crazy motions right within the city. What could that signify? The trouble is brewing. They're somehow caught unawares. 
outside the city walls, there's an enemy approaching. And now inside the city walls, all hands need to be on deck. Well, the enemy has been spotted. There isn't a moment to lose. War is on the horizon, quite literally. And so Nahum describes that the chariots race madly in the streets and rush wildly in the squares. Chariots were assembled, yes, but now they're just getting to any position that they can to start to make their defense. They race madly in the streets. They don't even take the side roads anymore. What does it say? It says they navigate right through the city square itself. Riders have such a sense of urgency in this moment that they don't have any time to even consider the the safety of their own travelers, their own merchants, women and children in the city square. War is at hand, and now it's time to move. So the image that Nahum portrays with this language of mad racing and darting gives us this impression that proud Nineveh has just been caught off guard. The enemy is here. No, it's there. No, it's over on that side. Race over there. Find the weakness in the wall and quickly fill it. Don't let them breach the wall here or there or anywhere. And so that's the mad rush. Darting to and fro, they discover that they're more vulnerable than they think. And that's just from human enemies coming. Well, as they race madly and rush wildly, then the description is very fitting. Their appearance is like torches. Zoom, the steel of the chariots going, flashing in the sun, casting the sun in the eyes of all who observe them, screaming past people inside the city walls. That's how they seem, like fiery torches zooming back and forth. And then Nahum illustrates further. He says they dash to and fro like lightning flashes. Well, they're swift as lightning. That should be a symbol of strength, right? Should be a fearful display before an overly confident enemy. That's what was described of the Roman Emperor Julius Caesar in Asia Minor on that very local battle, that he was like a lightning flash. But here, it's all in judgment. You see in the passage, these are the frantic actions of a military whose defense strategies are put to the ultimate test. And the question is, with these lightning flashes going back and forth of chaos, will the Ninevite army be able to completely fortify their city in time? Will their best laid plans bring them success or will they fall short and fall under enemy control? That brings us to verse 5. Verse 5 adds more descriptions of these mounting defenses and they reveal the seriousness of the war that's coming against them. There's four descriptions given in verse 5 that help us understand this. The verse says, he remembers his mighty ones. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall and the mantelet is set up. Nahum personifies Nineveh with the masculine pronoun he, which seems to relate perhaps to the king of Nineveh. We saw them in verse 3. They're the bravest of the brave. They're summoned to battle. The best of the best are going to defend the city. And that's what the king recounts. He remembers. He's ordering. He's making sure we're not missing even a one. And the soldiers that in verse 3 are described as set up to march, now stumble in their march. But these are the mighty men. So what's the reason that they stumble? I was reading one commentator that took this all to be about Babylon and said, oh, the Babylonians have all these thick machinery of war and the, 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 the copper shields that shine in the sun are so heavy as they're marching forward, tripping along into the river that they just fall, they stumble because it's too heavy for them. No, 
leave all of that. Let's think about within Nineveh. Why would these warriors stumble? They're moving too fast. They're tripping over each other. There's just too much being leveled at them, too much defending that they need to do, and they can't get there quick enough. You see, Nahum says they hurry to her wall. Of course they do. Now the defense begins, and it begins from the top of the city wall. Nahum writes that the mantelet is set up. Now, what is a mantelet? Mantelet describes in modern warfare terms a kind of armored shield or plate, and it could go outside of a tank or some type of a rampart. And in ancient times, it might have been a movable shelter. There's plenty of documentation on this, especially in uh, medieval times, of some type of large encasing that could be moved by the, uh, the soldiers to create a very large, very tall and wide, but thin uh, type of barrier, something that couldn't be pierced through so easily. Now, if we think of medieval castles, this might help too, because built right into the castle might be some type of a little outpost. At some edge, some corner, there would be a very tall type of tower with, as you might imagine, little slits, not windows. It's not to let light in, because to let light in could be letting in all of the spears and the javelins and the fiery darts, but instead just enough to be able to shoot out. And so now we have the Ninevites that are, in every sense, able to defend themselves if they can get there quick enough. But they're ready, but they're tripping over themselves getting there. And there just is no time left. So do you see the judgment in all of these descriptions? And this is Nahum writing to Israel so that they would be comforted by this judgment. So the frenzy highlights the fact that No human preparations, no defense strategy, no machinery of war, no structure can withstand the wrath of God because this is driven by God, not by the Babylonians. And why can nothing stand? It's because Yahweh himself is the defender of his people. Yahweh will not have his decree thwarted. And here it is in Nahum's generation. It's the decree for the judgment, the punishment, and destruction of the Assyrians. But we do have to ask, if, if with all of this defense and all of this uh, impenetrable power of the Assyrians, how will God actually accomplish his plan to destroy them? Because it doesn't look like the Babylonians are getting in, right? looks impossible that these who have emptied others, how are they going to get emptied? Who can even get over the wall? Who can take down these ramparts? Who can destroy the mantelets? Well, verse 5 ends with a little bit of that cliffhanger. It doesn't give us the answer, but Nahum moves us into the final scene in verses 6 and 7. And now we see we're getting the 30,000-foot flyover of the attack on Nineveh. And then the rest of chapter 2 is going to offer more details on the results of the attack itself, kind of a post-apocalyptic view of Nineveh after the attack. And we get some insights into that right from verses 6 and 7 in this final snapshot. We see that Nineveh's time of boasting has indeed run out. They're swept away in God's fury. It's done 
And it doesn't even take the Babylonians with their human strength to destroy the city. This is not a human action that causes the initial destruction. God brings judgment swiftly and fiercely in a dramatic way that proves that he, and he alone, is the greatest adversary of his enemies. So Nahum brings us into this final scene, and this is, he gives us the third key idea. And it's another exclamation point one, judgment is here. Judgment is here, verses six and seven. Read verse six. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is melted away. Well, the battle against Nineveh really wasn't won by the Babylonians, although they would swoop in and they would do extreme damage and they would empty the emptiers. But the destruction of Nineveh came with a flood, not a symbolic allegorical flood of soldiers, but a rush of water powerful enough to dissolve this city. Nineveh was beaten by water. Bacock, bacock, bacock. Do you hear the water? That's the judgment. The first part of verse 6, Nahum prophesies that the gates of the rivers are open. Now, for a little geography lesson, just so because it's sometimes hard to understand even where modern-day Iraq is, let alone ancient Nineveh that would be in that position. So the city of Nineveh was situated east of the Tigris River at an intersection with another important river, and it made the area very fertile. It made it a desirable location for agriculture. And that's the area of the world that we call the Fertile Crescent. You knew that when you were in ninth grade. Canals and aqueducts ensured the economic productivity throughout the entire metropolis. There was immense beauty coming from all of the gardens that were very fruitful throughout Nineveh. And the rivers and the canals and the moats and whatnot, all of these sources of water were the greatest defense of Nineveh against their enemies. They could protect their city walls just by having water in front of them. But the rivers would themselves become Yahweh's new emptiers. Nahum prophesied a flood. And historians then record this flood in the year 612, 612 BC. And it was through the flood that the Babylonians then could lay siege to this defenseless city because it burst through all the walls and made it so that they were defenseless. Ancient historians record that the rainfall in the area was always good, but there was something unique and certainly a divine intervention here that uh, the, the, the banks of the rivers as they intersected there were flooded, it created a rapid current, and it caused catastrophic damage as the water just pummeled down into Then in comes the human enemy. The water destroyed Nineveh. What's notable about the timing of the flood itself that happened in Nineveh is that for the prior years, at least two going on to three, uh, the enemies of Assyria had been trying to take down the walls at various points. Couldn't even make a dent. But God had a timing for their destruction. And then the enemy can just walk right in. Well, the second phrase of verse 6 says that the palace is melted away. The palace is melted away. Nahum wants his readers to think of the damage the floodwaters did to the king's palace. Why the king's palace? Well, you see, if we can picture the highest power in the capital itself and and see it dissolve under the effects of water, under the pressure of natural forces, then we can understand that in one fell swoop, Israel's great enemy is just reduced to a pile of mud. 
That's God's work. The Assyrians have no power left to harm God's people. It's over. Archaeologists, I think this is an interesting fact, they record a statement about the palace of Nineveh as they were able to uncover it. They write this, and it it helps us picture what the flood actually accomplished. Listen. They write, The exterior facades of the palace are made from tens of thousands of baked bricks erected on a foundation of limestone blocks which are faced with polished white plaster and capped with blue-glazed bricks. Huge doors of cedar wood are adorned with decorated shiny copper bands, while the arches and copings are adorned with colorful glazed tiles. Can you see what those floodwaters did? Can you see how they would have struck the clay? They would have struck the limestone. They would have taken out the plaster. They would have broken through the walls. The waters would have softened the foundation of the palace until it simply melted away, dissolved. That's what Nahum prophesied. And that was the kind of construction that would make that possible. Can anything thwart God's hand when he decides to judge his enemies? We need to remember that. We need to reflect on these things. So as we reflect on just verse 6, going into verse 7, is there any doubt that God is going to execute judgment in a way that only he can do? It's so unique. It's so fabulous to see God in all of his jealousy Finally, judge evildoers, those that have been taunting and harming God's people for centuries. God is a jealous God. He will share his glory with none other. And the defeat of his enemies doesn't belong to the Babylonians. It belongs to God. So God is going to do through the natural means of water that which the Babylonians couldn't do with all of their pickaxes, with all of their attack. See, the Babylonians can't take credit for what God did. They can only take advantage of it. Do you see that? They can't take credit for what only God could do, but they can take advantage of it, and that's to the advantage of God in fully destroying, fully emptying those enemies who were the emptiers. Who does the battle belong to? The battle belongs to God. The battle belongs to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. So it's important for us to reflect on this fact that Nahum's specific prediction of the flood, it didn't come true for perhaps another 50 years from the time that he declared it, from the time that Israel got really excited about all this, they would have to wait yet another generation. But guess what? God did what he said he would do. Everything with the exact details that are predicted here, they came true. Because God always fulfills his promises. He judges Israel's enemies. Israel can't do it, and neither can other superpowers. God will do it. And how does he start it? With rising riverbanks. It's just amazing. Just amazing. Now we come into verse 7, and that's the conclusion of the section. So let's read it together once more. So it stands fixed. She is exiled. She is carried away. And her maidservants are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their hearts. Nahum reminds us that God's judgment stands fixed. There's no going back from what he has written. Just think of Psalm 119, verse 89, that says, Forever, O Yahweh, your word stands firm in heaven. You can't unravel what God has revealed. There's no undoing it. So what will happen when Nineveh, the emptier, is emptied? Well, this is the irony of ironies. 
The people of Nineveh, who were the experts in stripping their people of everything, including their flesh, would now be stripped away from their land. They would be the ones exiled. They would be the ones carried away. The idea of being exiled is really to epitomize shame that someone stronger than you ripped you away and took control over you in such a way that you could take nothing with you. It depends on the force of someone greater than you to exile you. Can you think today of hundreds of thousands, now over a million people that are fleeing in order to preserve their lives that have been exiled from their land? Well, if you think of Ukraine, then fleeing is not to their shame. Why is it not to their shame? They face unprovoked evil. They themselves have not sought out war. But it's very different for Nineveh. It's to the shame of Nineveh that they would be exiled. They are the great and mighty exilers. And now it's unthinkable that they would be exiled. They're carried away. That replays this idea of this water imagery to be swept away as with a flood, literally quite with a flood. But carried away has another another meaning, and it's a rare use here that helps us understand. Carried away is like carrying or bringing up, offering a sacrifice. That's how this term is used. And so it would be offering a sacrifice to appease divine wrath. So why don't we apply that to Nineveh? And what we see is God is satisfied by those that he carries away. He destroys Nineveh, and what does he do? He satisfies his own bloodthirst. You see, God is not a monster, but he is just. And he will destroy all evildoers once and for all. And he gives us a glimpse into it, saving his people by carrying away to the satisfaction of his wrath. See how beautiful that is? We need that. But at the end of verse 7, just to bring it to a close here, who's left? Who's left inside the city? It says, and her maidservants, Nineveh's maidservants, are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their hearts. Here in view are female servants or slaves who are left in the city after it's been besieged. There's no mention here of men. Uh, I don't think it's an argument of silence to say that they've been killed or they've been hauled off as spoils of war. And there's no mention of the nobles or the elites. Nobody's going around in crimson now. Seems that the only people left as survivors were those that were considered to be of the lowest social class. And even then, these servant women didn't have anybody to serve. It's really the portrayal of the emptiness of an empty city, emptied by the hand of God. Now, it's a tragedy when we think of the women in this condition. It says that they are moaning like the sound of doves. Do you realize they're gasping for breath? They're completely overtaken by grief. They're unable to even cry with the kind of wailing that you would expect of a victim of war. Instead, they groan in despondency. It's such a sad situation that they've been left in. But there's an irony here. We need to catch the irony because it's all part of judgment against those evil ones who would have tried to empty Israel for so long. And the irony is when it says that they moan like doves, the word dove, you know what it is in Hebrew? Jonah. It's 
the word Jonah. That's the name of the prophet who came to Israel in the past, uh, to Nineveh in the past to cry out against their wickedness. And what did Jonah cry out in Jonah chapter 3? Repentance, the grace of God for those that would submit themselves to him. You know, Nineveh back in those, those days, they received Jonah. They received this dove. They received his message and they humbled themselves and they were saved. But the heart change of their forefathers at some point changed back And now they have hearts of stone. And these Ninevites in their evil are taken out. And who's left? Those that moan without words on a big pile of mud in an empty city. Those whimpering women epitomize the vestiges of a wicked people that are ruined by their own sin. Do you see that? It's horror, it's shock, it's enough that the only thing really we will see or hear from these women is beating on their hearts. Do you hear the thumping? It's not the beating of drums, it's not the beating of tambourines, it's not celebrating a victory. No, it's the beating sounds of those who have been emptied and are now inconsolable, left in their misery just to beat on their hearts. Well, one commentator ends this treatment well and says, the city has become a ghost town of grief and mourning. You see, the wrath of God has fallen on Israel's enemies and has completely devastated them, and we get quite a picture of that. Well, in conclusion, and I'm sorry, we're going to go over a couple minutes. just need to give you some concluding thoughts of what we've just seen in Nahum 2, verses 1 to 7. We're following the news We understand the world that we're in and the wars that are here and the wars that might be coming. We see in real time how leaders of modern superpowers right now in the East, but could be anywhere, are laughing at their neighbors and reveling in destruction and destructive plans. We see evil personified right now, not just because that's the spin of the news, but because that's the reality. And we perceive no limit to the dangers that await Border nations, where will this evil end? What about for believers that suffer in these places? What about believers that suffer under the oppressive hand of an evil leader and a system of evil? We could be thinking not just of the East. We could be thinking of even ourselves, our neighbors to the North, those as believers that suffer under injustices And that type of oppression is meant to just drive us into darkness rather than into hope. And so Nahum is writing to us. Nahum has offered us today a prophetic perspective that can comfort us as the darkness increases as we go on, and it probably will. As we look back on history, we see that what was predicted about Nineveh came to pass exactly as it was proclaimed, right? So Nahum is asking us, If today we will trust the Lord to fight our battles for us, he's done it. History's recorded it. We don't know what comes. Israel at that time didn't know how this was all going to shake out, but they had an unwavering trust in the Lord if they were believers. Will we trust in his promises today to avenge evil with his justice in his way at his time? Will we trust God to wait and, and, and wait in total peace with this underlying hope that we can only have in him? Or 
What's the opposite? We contend against our enemies near and far in our human strength with words, with actions, with vitriol coming out of us. And we return evil for evil. We revile those who revile us. We curse our enemies with our lips and with our actions. Is that who we must be? Will we react in our what we call righteous anger, just like these Ninevite warriors trying to get up the wall, dashing madly around for ultimately no purpose? What we need is a future perspective, and that's what Nahum wanted for his people in his generation. It's what we need in ours. This is the Lord's day, but we need to look forward to the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? It's that fierce and brutal day in which the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our defender, will descend from the clouds, he'll trample his enemies underfoot, and establish the world in total righteousness. That's the day of the Lord. Is that what you're thinking of on this Lord's day? Because there's comfort and there's hope in that. If you'll trust in him to arrive there, God is watching evil unfold before our eyes. He is patient, but make no mistake. And this is Nahum's point. One day, he will judge all evil from all the earth. And how will he do it? Well, maybe we just go back to the ancient historian that recorded it of Julius Caesar. Like a thunderbolt, which in one and the same moment has come, has struck, and has departed. Julius Caesar, I came, I saw, I conquered. God will come to the earth. He will stand face to face with all of his enemies. He will see them in their power and he will melt them all away. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this powerful reminder from Nahum of your power and also of your desire to rescue everyone that you've redeemed, to restore your children to the majesty that you designed for them from the beginning. Lord, would you cause us to wait patiently for you to avenge us as we wait for your return? And Lord, would you remind us to pray for peace and pray for righteousness right now and yet find contentment in you no matter the attacks that we might come under? Lord, help us to remember from Nahum that one day you will satisfy the totality of your wrath by destroying all evildoers from the earth. We offer you these cries of our heart to the praise of your glory now and forever. Amen.